This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And you know Adrienne Brodeur's name from her memoir from 2019, Wild Game. Huge hit. All of us paid attention. Everyone's eyes got really big because, well, it's quite a story. And we're going to come back to that in a second. But... There is a new novel called Little Monsters set on Cape Cod, and it is the July Barnes & Noble Book Club pick. And I'm going to tell you right now, we are spoiler-free in this conversation. If you want the spoilers, come join us in August. You can find the details on BN.com for that online event, and we will be full of spoilers in that conversation. But here, we're going to hold some cards close. But Adrian, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm going to do my best in this secret laden book, not to give <laughs> anything away, but I, I might mess up. <laughs> well, the good news is too, we have an editor. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I love the editors. But, you know, I was thinking about it over the last couple of weeks as I've been prepping for the show. And part of me wonders, you know, you've got this marvelous Vivian Gornick line that you cited quite often when you were talking about Little Monsters. And I mean, she's Vivian Gornick. Of course, you're going to cite Vivian Gornick. But for the drama to deepen, we must see the loneliness of the monster and the cunning of the innocent. And of course, Little Monsters being the title of the novel. Part of me is wondering, would you have been able to write Little Monsters if you hadn't written Wild Game first? Ah, I you starting with the stump. Sorry. Um, <laughs> You know, I have no idea, but I will say that there are similarities between what intrigued me about my own story and what was very fun and delightful about writing about a fictional family's secrets. So I'm also very attuned to the gray areas of character. And when I had read that quote by Vivian Gornick while I was working on Wild Game, I mean, I taped it to my computer. And it was my North Star. And I'd say, you know, I still feel the same way. I feel like everything I'm curious about is the gray zone. I'm not interested in heroes and villains. I'm all about what is sort of corrupt and courageous in every single character. And you deliver. You deliver in this Gardner family. So we've got dad, Alex. And we've got his two children who are adults, Abby and Ken. And Ken is married with two children. Abby is single by choice. Yes. Let's put it that way. Before we get too deep into the characters, I'd really like you to sort of describe Cape Cod for folks who are not necessarily familiar with sort of year-round life on the Cape. I think there are plenty of people who have been to the Cape, obviously, you know, for summers or a week or whatever. But year-round community on the Cape is really different. And that's the world your characters are part of. It's true. I mean, Cape Cod to me is just such a fascinating landscape. I have not lived there year round, but I've Mm -hmm. spent every summer of my life there. And Mm -hmm. I spend time throughout the year because I'm fortunate enough to have a small cabin or a cottage on the Cape. But I mean, it is a place of privilege, obviously. A lot of people come to summer or spend vacations but it is also a place where people live. But I think always the thing that moves me most about Cape Cod is the natural world there. There is something so powerful about it for me. And I think that comes from the essential fragility of the land. I mean, in essence, it's a sandbar. We all know that it's going to disappear. And 
each year you see chunks of beach gone, you see rocks moved, but like hour by hour and minute by minute with the light, with the seasons, with the tides, just the views change all the time. And it's spectacularly beautiful and bountiful. I love to fish and clam and harvest the land. So, you know, it's just a pleasure for me to write about it because I experience it with all my senses. And I think too, the gardeners share that. Yeah. Love. I mean, Ken might be a little mad that it seems that erosion is coming for his very fancy landscaped lawn, but they do. They're grounded in this place and they are of this place. And I think it really matters because they are a little flinty (laughs) and I like flinty characters, but they're a flinty family. They are not the easiest to get to know. They have expectations. Adam he makes a really serious decision early on. This is not a small thing that Adam decides to do. Sure. And what I'd say is when I started this novel, I wanted there to be something big at stake for every member of the Gardner family. And it's a small family. It's a father and two adult children. The mother died long ago. There's a big moment on the horizon for each of them. So for Adam Gardner, who's the patriarch and a renowned marine biologist, he's about to turn 70 and he's kind of obsessed with his relevancy and and I should say fading relevancy. So he's very determined that he wants to make some kind of scientific breakthrough that will ensure his legacy. What we don't know up front is and and each of these characters is also balancing a secret. He has bipolar disorder and he has made the conscious decision to go down on his medication and to supplement it with his with his own ideas for what will help him. But in that way, what he's trying to do is connect the dots that his mind is delivering him, all these elusive little ideas and thoughts. He feels that his his brain, once it's not anesthetized by the bipolar medication, will be able to make these connections and he will have his big discovery. And he is very convinced he's on the brink of cracking the code of whale language. He is a complicated guy. He is a complicated guy. They all are complicated people. (laughs) Which I appreciate. Absolutely appreciate. It's a heck of an opening. Thank you. The way you do it with these tiny details, he's meeting a new doctor. He's unimpressed with the doctor's new socks. He's unimpressed with everything. He's very much a guy of his time and of his place. And you have set this novel on Cape Cod with these characters in the summer of 2016, which I think is a pretty great stylistic choice, especially for what you're doing. So can we talk about that decision that you made? Absolutely. You know, I was working on another book in 2016 that was during the wild game times in my own life. I felt like there was an uneasy mood in the country that just felt palpable and riveting to me. I think you could practically sense that the ground was shifting. And even though I am no political historian or sociologist. I mean, it was really, it felt like a global inflection point and it sort of marked the collapse of an established order and sort of this perfect storm, which enabled some people to 
reckon with their history and forced other people into deeper denial. But I just remember at that time, even though I was fully one of the people who thought the world was going in one direction, which it did not, I remember at that time thinking a little bit, I didn't have the idea for the novel yet, but I remember just thinking it would be a fascinating moment to set a novel in, in no small part because I love the idea of readers knowing more than characters. Um, And so it was really thrilling to all the time have these characters, you know, who are either excited about Hillary about to become president or the way the world was going. That's not what happened. Did you start with the time frame and the place or did you start with this family? Because this family feels very fully formed. Yeah, it's... um, It's interesting. I mean, I feel like I could talk endlessly about the creative process and inspiration, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and yet it would be still hard to to grasp. So I came back from, you know, I was sent home from tour in March of 2020, just like the rest of the world. And I think what I do, or what I'm now, you know, a couple books in recognize about myself is I start noticing what I notice. Just really where my subconscious goes, where this brain keeps landing, why is it landing there? But I just, I pay really close attention. It's not like I ever come up and think, I am going to write a family drama set in 2016 about X, Y, or Z. It's just, so one of the things that I kept noticing, I was curious about siblings. I was curious about sibling rivalry I have a lot of friends who have complicated relationships with their brothers or sisters. I, in my own life, have had numerous step-siblings. I have a biological brother. Both my parents had half-siblings that they didn't know about. Every resting point, that was where my head went. And so I decided to go to the original sibling story of all time, Cain and Abel. <laughs> and guess what? That story has nothing. Like there is no there there. It's such a slim, slim, slim tale. And I remember being sort of, you know, gravely disappointed. Yeah, everyone gives gifts. Father likes one more the other. Where does this murder come from? And then, of course, I realized not right away but if there was one thing I took from that, it was the structure. So there is this moment and, and my novel is the propulsion, the, the going forward is all about getting to Adam's 70th birthday party, where each, each of these characters plans to reveal something quite large. And there will be the perception or reality that the father favors one gift over the other. So that's what I that's what I took from Cain and Abel. But in terms of you, you mentioned that the characters seemed fully formed. The only character who was completely fully formed, and it just seems so odd, was Adam. I mean, I could put my hands over the keyboard and channel that man, that 70-year-old <laughs> bipolar, cantankerous, grandiose, depressed, you know, name it. He was so easy for me. The rest of them was much more as, you know, you would expect that you you have to write quite far into your book to understand people's motivation and to, you know, kind of hold things tightly, but you need to not have the lid on so tight that unexpected things can't happen. And, And 
what a character does on any given page, you know, you need to be surprised too. So I had to write quite far for everyone else, but not for Adam. When you say write really far, are we talking halfway? Are we talking like how far is halfway? I'd say halfway. And then they come into their own. And then you obviously Mm -hmm. need to go back with your new knowledge of, well, why is Ken wounded? Okay. If he's wounded about you know, being a fat kid, it didn't really discover that till 150, you're going to have to <laughs> go back and sprinkle some of that in. Let's start with Ken, actually. He is a very, very <laughs> complicated guy. Again, also very recognizable, right? Here's a guy who's finally found success, but he always has this little edge where he's thinking, well, now I'm finally better than so-and-so. Like he just can't live. He's always yeah. in competition. And it's not just with his sister. It's not just with his, he is in competition with the world. I mean, there are a couple of points too. He has twin daughters and there are a couple of points where I'm like, are you actually competing with your 13? You are. (laughs) Oh, wow, you are. But yet he's not a genuinely malicious guy. He is very complicated. He has layers. There were times where he got on a nerve, which tells me I'm talking about a fictional character like a real person again. So yay, you. (laughs) Yay, Adrian. Thank you. But for you, living with a guy like this, I kept thinking about all of the times you said, you know, empathy was the thing that you came away from after writing Wild Game. Yeah. Writing about your very complicated mother. And Ken is really the character that represented that for me in this novel where you really had to have a lot of empathy as the writer because otherwise... And and I do have empathy for him. Well, I'll back up and say I have empathy for a lot of men who in recent years had to come to terms with their own privilege and place in this world and think about that some. But I had a lot of empathy in particular for Ken because he's by far in the way the most wounded character in this book. And humans are like all other creatures. They are at their most aggressive when they're wounded. And I really held the Vivian Gornick quote in my mind as I was writing him and thinking about him. But one thing that was really helpful was actually putting him, seeing him in his therapist office. And so we could discover some of these wounds. And, you know, he lost his mother as a young boy, you know, that first female abandonment. He loved his sister too much because his father was kind of crazy and not on the scene. So, you know, even though the sister was younger, they formed this very tight bond and he just adored her. And then she became an adolescent and turned away from him and his good friend as a boyfriend in the process. So he felt all these abandonments, and it just grew into this rage, this wanting to succeed, this singular determination, which I think we've all seen in a lot of people. And yet there is a vulnerable little boy in there somewhere that, you know, you keep trying to get to. And and hopefully you saw a little bit of that at the end. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, everyone gets their arc. Yes. Everyone gets their arc and it's a complete arc. And the way you balance perspectives and, you know, we've also got an outsider who comes sort of trotting up gently and she's a whole, I'm quite fond of that character. I'm very fond of how you worked her in and and gave her space to be the outsider that she is. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of all we're going to say there because 
she's an excellent addition. And I just, the structure of the book though, so much happens in a rather compressed timeline. I mean, you take us from what, April through October. When I think about how much happens yeah. in this story and what these characters go through, I mean, I love the device of the party and mm-hmm. everyone's moving towards this party because, you know, this is supposed to be fun. And oof. So structurally, did you know when you sat down to do this that you were going to need to alternate POVs and give yourself, I know you based it on the sort of story structure of Cain and Abel, but you still have to give the gardeners their space. You still have to give Adrian, the novelist, her space. I mean, right. yeah, you got the inspiration, but. You know, I am a pretty intuitive writer and I don't know if that's because I don't have an MFA or because I feel like most of what I've learned about writing is from reading and being an editor. But I do know that after writing memoir and being in this head and this head alone, it was so fun and so exciting to be in that really super close third person, you know, in the brains of those characters. At first, I thought it was just going to be the father and the two children and then the outsider, Steph, as she comes in. And then, you know, I found that I was curious about other people. And so, you know, gave Jenny, who's Ken's wife, a few bits. At one point, I gave the therapist and then I got too far afield and scaled back and pulled it in. I think what I find so interesting is on some level, all of these characters are so kind of sure, you know, as we all are in our thoughts. Well, that person smiled at me funny because they must have been thinking that or this or the other. And the fact is, by being able to go into all of these perspectives, it was easy to show how everyone is wrong about the others. I love Jenny as a character. (laughs) Me too. She was a late in the game. Oh, well, I'm glad you let her in. (laughs) I did. I am too. Because, I mean, she just surprised me in so many, and the shredding of the fret sheets. <laughs> the cast felt like it was the perfect size, though. It really did. It just, it felt like I was never spending too much time in one POV. And I liked having that ground shift for me as a reader. There were a couple of points where I felt very sure I knew where something was going. And then I was like, oh, I clearly, okay. Ab- Abby also made some choices that I was like, okay. <laughs> that's quite excellent I'm glad to hear that not what I expected but I'm quite delighted because they're very Abby things right they're very true to who I think you've given us as a character and I was like okay it is so fun as the writer at this early stage to actually hear what is exciting to a reader because you know it's before I've really talked about the book it's before I've you know a lot of people have read it So it's kind of like I'm all perked up thinking, okay, she's in, you know, it's just fascinating. But also it's fun. I mean, here's the thing. Reading a book for the first time, right, is one, really, really fun. And also I like sitting with someone's body of work. Now I have to admit, I have not read your very, very first novel from the early aughts. Slightly more comic than everything, though you are very funny and you have these very wry I like to think of them as New England moments, being an ex-New Englander (laughs) myself, but I don't think we can lay claim to it entirely. You have a very wry sense of humor, but seeing Wild Game and Little Monsters, your sentences are great, one. 
<laughs> you have a sense of character that I really appreciate because you like that gray area, right? And because yeah. you can have empathy for the complicated people. Because I think it would be really easy to just sort of choose sides, right? Yeah. No. You sit down to write and you choose a side and it's like, ooh, but is that fun to read? Not so much. Yeah. No, I agree with you there. So how much of that is sort of your old editorial hat, though? Because you did work in book publishing for a really long time before you flipped sides. And also Zoetrope Magazine, you were one of the founders of that quite great literary magazine, which still published. So you're doing all of these sort of other bits and pieces before you sit down to do the work yourself. But I don't think you ever really walk away from being an editor. I think it does shape the way you see story. And I'm wondering if that is true for you. That's so interesting. I have not thought about it that way, but I am sure you are right. And I have remained in the literary world, although I'm not an editor anymore. I run a literary nonprofit called Aspen Words, which is a program of the Aspen Institute. But I do think it's interesting that it really was when I stepped away from editing that I was able to write, because I think it takes so much to sort of put your hands in the dough of someone else's work. One of the things that's been most helpful for me in terms of making space for my writing and, and figuring out my writing has been to sort of shift my paradigm away from how am I ever going to fit this into my life? You know, I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, I'm, I have a job that I love that's kind of big and all those things. But I think of writing as such a privilege and it's the one thing I do for myself. So I am one of those people, you know, which does not mean it's easy, which does not mean I'm just smiling as I type. I mean, it's it's complicated, but it is like, you know, for all of you who exercise or meditate or something, you know, we can only make time for so much, but this actually makes me feel better. And when I'm not doing it, you know, I, I tend to feel like there's something missing in my life. I mean, I haven't been writing the last few months because I've been so busy sort of participating in the publishing and I find myself hungry to go back this the way I imagine you know anyone who exercises daily feels horrible not doing it for a few weeks okay but let's shout out your editor for a second I mean <laughs> she has very good taste <laughs> I adore my editor so much and we actually knew each other before she bought wild game and I remember she and I had a lunch and she's a friend. She was a good friend. We worked together at Houghton Mifflin. Um, and I remember talking to her and I was like, you know, my agent shouldn't send you this. And she's like, no, absolutely not. That would not be the wise thing to do. And we both sort of nodded. We just agreed on this. And then we got up to leave the restaurant and she turned around and she's like, no, Adrian, send it to me. And I did. And it was just the best decision ever. And I just feel so grateful and happy that Little Monsters landed with her as well, because she's an editor's editor, she understands the business and knows how to launch something. But she's also just, she gets so deep in the book with you. And I knew that I wanted someone to work with me on the words, not just, you know, pushing it out into the world. Well, and especially to... I could see how there might be a temptation to let the plot parts drive what you're trying to do, but the characters yeah. are so like everyone got under my skin in the in the ways that you want 
yeah. you know, a fictional character to get under your skin. And, you know, that constant sort of, would I do that? No, I would not do that. And yet. <laughs> and the characters 100% drove the plot, even though, you know, there was this device of working towards a party. It was the characters who who sort of pushed that along. And also, I had no idea going into that party how to unwind the book. And I was surprised by what happened in the end, which was great fun. It was very satisfying. <laughs> it was a very satisfying ending. Thank you. When I think about Frankenstein for a second, because you do, Frankenstein pops up in unexpected ways mm -hmm. in Little Monsters. And I like the way it shows up. But I do want to talk about some of your literary influences. Because again, you've been an editor, you work in books now, you've worked in literary magazines. I mean, all of this. And you have always said, read as if everything matters because yes. it does. And I love, I love that idea. I really, I love that whole idea of you've just got to read as widely as possible. But Absolutely. can we talk about literary influences for a second? There have to be a sure. few that you hold close. I mean, I read voraciously. I didn't always, I was not the kid with the, the flashlight under the mattress. I had a television in my room as a kid. I don't know why any parent would do that, but I just, yeah. So I wasn't <laughs> that person. I really became a voracious reader in my early 20s in no small part uh, because my stepmother was a bookstore owner and she would just press these incredible, <laughs> incredible books into my hands. And I still remember those first. I mean, Jim Harrison, yeah. Alice Hoffman, Barbara Kingsolver. And at the same time, you know, I, I also got into reading in high school, but the, the very high drama, the sort of... Um, the Heart of Darkness and Anna Karenina. Both my parents were writers of different sorts. My father was wrote fiction, but he was also um, a journalist and was a New York uh, wrote for the New Yorker for years and years and years. Staff writer there. My mother wrote food and travel pieces. So I think in that that way of separation, I was like not doing that. I'm going my own way. I went in an entirely different direction, sort of a save the world public policy type of thing. And then realized, you know, that the political journals were always going down on the bedside where the literary journals were all going up. And I just started reading and reading and reading. I love poetry and always read poetry just a little bit, can't do too much, but I read poetry regularly for language, for inspiration that way. You know, Mary Oliver is obviously with her Cape Cod, you know, she's a kindred spirit. Auden reliably brings me to tears every time. I love Jericho Brown, Ada Limone, Tracy K. Smith. I'm just thinking of, of how they get to what's essential in their poems. I am a huge devotee of family dramas, obviously. <laughs> I love memoir, but I also just love any family drama. So The Prince of Tides, I just finished The Covenant of Water, I love Bliss and Sorrow, I'm waiting for Tayari Jones's next book, oh, Hated Breath. Wait, right there with you, that? right there oh, okay. with you, on the edge of my seat waiting for that Tayari Jones. Yes, Anything by Ann Patchett, Elizabeth McCracken. So the North Star book changes, you know, regularly. I feel like I'm part of a conversation with many, many authors, you know, that we all sort of write when we admire bits that they've done so well in their books. I feel so grateful that I really found and discovered 
and was able to turn away from my political <laughs> career right, right. and just race back towards publishing, which I've really been in since my late 20s. And, you know, I've had had a wonderful career. I mean, really have enjoyed, I, you know, I've never been bored a moment. Right. That's yeah. the thing about books. Like that's you, the thing there, about there books. is no way to be bored. I get excited thinking about it. I mean, this is no, and even, <laughs> even now, like one of the things I do for Aspen Words is we have an annual literary prize called the Aspen Words Literary Prize. And it's for a work of fiction that sheds a light on a social issue. And so every year I read, you know, the long list, which is, you know, 10 to 20 books that are just so wonderful. And by some debut authors, some established authors, but I really love and and my literary career outside of writing has, has really always been about discovery and discovering new voices. Right. That talent development. It's great when you're right, but sometimes, you know, you think, oh, this is the one. And then you have failure to launch. <laughs> and and I'm not going to mention any of that, but there are times I, in my previous life, I was the director of the Discover Great New Writers program here. And I mean, there were times where I would get so excited about something. Oh, and this is, this is going to be it. And then the universe did not agree. (laughs) Honestly, also, it it takes a certain amount of fairy dust for any book to take off. And it's a process. And when you're right, it's glorious. And when the (laughs) stars align and everything just happens in all yeah. of the ways that you can hope. And then readers are walking around saying, oh, this one, this one, you know, I get really excited just thinking about the whole process. And But yeah. the reality is that as much as I believe there is a book for every reader, which I genuinely, genuinely believe that, making the noise is a little harder than I would like. Yeah. <laughs> That's part no, of- for sure. It's complicated. And it's complicated for the people who are writing reviews and it's complicated for outlets. And it's just, I sort of miss that moment where, you know, you could just stumble across something in some paper or some journal, and it just feels like that's the one the same voices over again. Yeah. And I miss that serendipity. I kind of miss that serendipity of, ah, who are you? Well, and hopefully it's happening a little bit via social media where people are just, you know, this sort of able to express, you know, bookstagrammers and so on. And you you find people who are aligned with your taste, but there's so few papers compared to uh, I don't know, 20 years ago yeah, when right. you just pour over them. It's just that stumbling across things too, where you would find something sort of off the book page and think, huh, who are you? Who Do are I you? need to read you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you miss the gardeners? No. (laughs) I mean, I had a good long run with them. I was with them from 2020 and I will be with them through this book tour. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know this so well, but the book you write is never the book anyone else reads. Like Mm -hmm. we all read a different book. So people will be telling me what they took away from this family for a long time. And although I'm not ready to talk about it, I have been noticing my brain landing and landing and landing in a little spot that's got a different family or and different people that's populating it. So I'm I'm sort of thinking about moving on. I haven't started writing yet, but it's a nice feeling to notice this, notice it. Uh, I feel like Mary Oliver said it best. She said, pay attention, be astonished, write about it. Love that. And lucky us that <laughs> you take that advice, luckily. Yes. <laughs> I want to go back to the gardeners for a second, though, because I do, 
part of me wonders if they're okay, right? Like, I'm pretty sure Abby's okay, right? I'm pretty sure Jenny's okay. I think Ken's going to be okay in the long run. And Adam, I'm like, hmm. Well, I think Adam's got to let go of of the dream. I mean, I'm looking ahead in Adam's life, but mm-hmm. I think I don't. Th- I think it's never easy to get old. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's hard to have your relevance and importance sort of fade, especially mm-hmm. when you've been, you know, a contender. Yes, yes, yes. And I think these are hard life lessons. This might be a a bit about having taken care of. I'm in the process of taking care of early people, but it's, it's really difficult. It is so hard to get old. And I think, you know, probably in your seventies and eighties, you are really aware of what's ahead. I hope Adam can find some peace. Would you ever write about them? I sort of feel like you're done that this is, this is the story you needed to tell and we're good. This particular moment in their life is complete. I mean, when I think of who has, stuff left to say. I feel like Jenny's got some things she might want to talk about, although I haven't really thought about that yet. Maybe one of those twins is going to show up again. Um, (laughs) Who knows? It's, it's, it is a mystery how it all works. Those girls are, they, yeah, those are, they're good characters. They're really, really good characters. Thank you. Can we go back to process for a second, though? Absolutely. Because, I mean, we've talked about the literary inspiration, but I really do want to talk about the work because, again, there was never a point where I felt like I could see. It partially comes from reading a lot, right? Like sometimes you can see where someone had to sort of pivot where they weren't planning to or maybe Mm -hmm. you needed just a little extra, you know. But how much of the writing for you is rewriting? How much of the actual book, Little Monsters, that we're holding isn't what you'd planned? That's a great question. You know, everyone writes so differently. I am one of the people who believe in discipline sort of above all else. I I don't go chasing the muse. I sit down in the same place at the same time every day Mm -hmm. and wait for her to catch up. But once I am engaged, once the concept is sort of in my head, it is all I think about. And so every conversation, every sappy TV commercial, every book I read, every conversation I overhear, it all contributes. So it's a very holistic feeling of writing. So the writing doesn't just take place during the two hours. I mean, if I get up from five and I write from five, seven before the household wakes up, a lot of work happens then, but a lot of work happens when I'm reading or when I'm taking a walk in the woods. And I feel like, especially with fiction, because like with memoir, you know, you still have to have great instincts and good writing chops and everything else to write a great book. But with fiction, you also have to allow for this elusive, crazy creative process to take place. And I liken it a lot. It it feels like, you know, that feeling when you, when you wake up in the morning and you know, you've had a dream and you just like, it's just out of your grasp. Like that is the way I feel almost all the time. I wish I were someone who did the, write the sloppy draft and go Mm -hmm. back and edit the bejesus out of it. Right. I am not. Okay. It's not that it ever comes out perfect on the first draft, like no way. I write very slowly. You know, when when 
people talk about their 10,000 word days or even mm-hmm. 1,000 word days. I just want to shoot them because I'm probably on my best day, you know, I write one page, possibly two. Often I like delete two pages. Okay. But I feel like until I have a solid foundation, a foundation, like I'm more of an architect. If I know that this foundation is going to hold the first floor, then I can proceed. And if it still mm. feels wobbly and uncertain, like I just have to to shore it up. It doesn't need to be perfect in terms of language right. yet, but it needs to be solid so it can it can withstand everything I'm going to build on top of mm-hmm. it. I don't mm-hmm. know if that makes sense, but that's, it does. How, no, that's it does. how it feels for me. So often I start with kind of slim chapters that I that I build out. I'm neither a, a big outliner mm-hmm. or but I'm also not one of those people who just writes down every rabbit hole and has a 3000 page manuscript that then they find the gems in it. I I I don't know what I am. Like you, I enjoy a good family story. But I do need a family story to be well told. I mean, yes, there are, you know, man dies, woman gets married. It, there are certain sort of story elements, right? That there are, guy walks into a bar, woman leaves her husband. Like, so if you're going to use a family story as a framework, it helps to remember you're still building a world, right? Like, yes. I feel like we've totally let that language be co-opted by very specifically science fiction and fantasy right. like it doesn't have to have robots <laughs> to be to a world have building. world building i mean if if i buy into what you're giving me right like i have not been to the cape in a million years but there are elements that are recognizable to me as mm-hmm. the cape certainly but also there are just plenty of elements that i recognize because you've written about a piece of the world that i know enough about Mm -hmm. the humanity of your characters right i'm like oh i get you people yeah and then i don't and then i do and then i don't because that's the joy of reading right like you're on the journey with these people and as much as you've given us the additional knowledge that they do not have which is part of the fun there i'm very grounded in the world of little monsters i'm very very grounded in these people and i'm grounded in the setting and i'm grounded in what you're doing as the narrative voice thank you so fun it's I'm, so fun. Even when I had moments where I was like, I need to punt this person. Yes. I really need to punt this person. This behavior is atrocious, but true to the story. Atrocious and, and familiar too. And again, we will have a larger conversation, obviously, with Book Club when we can do spoilers, because there are a couple of things I'd really like to ask you about as the writer. So I'm going to try and dance around it before I let you get back to things, because I realize we're, <laughs> of course, running out of time. But for you, when you're sitting with this, right, and obviously there are big cultural and social themes that you're playing with, mm-hmm. and I'm not I'm not going to go into it here, but some of it is represented by Ken, some of it is represented by Abby, but everyone has, shall we say, a larger social conflict, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly your day job with the Aspen Literary Prize and and working in that social space, right? The social fiction space. How do you, though, as the writer, just let the characters in the story go where it needs to go? Because clearly there's always stuff happening in the back of your brain. Like between you noticing everything, right? And reading everything, there seems like there's always a slow burn in the back of your brain. So right. how do you just let the work be the work? 
I could answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I do think it's in this elusive, amorphous, I'm not sure what the right word is, but this state of of both leading and being led, being willing to be led by your characters, trusting them. I mean, there is really something about trusting the process, which sounds so woo-woo and wacky. And I I remember just how much I used to hate when someone would talk about, well, they're a character. Hold on, I was just like, oh God. (laughs) But I mean, there's truth to it. You have to be your best self. You have to be in control and open. One of the things that I find interesting is I feel like readers a lot of times want to know who's your character or is your character modeled on someone or something like that. And the fact is, you know, even if you have that at the beginning of the book, at your thought like, okay, he can be like the grumpy librarian or something. So quickly, if you're writing deeply and well and immersively, they do become something more. I also think, you know, one of the hidden truths is It's like, what part of yourself is actually in each character? Because I got to tell you, there are bits of me in Abby, Adam, in Ken, in Steph, like Jenny, I am all over each of them, much more so than I could say, well, Jenny is my third cousin, you know, Francis or something. I also find it funny when people say, well, such and such character is me. And I'm like, okay, you think whatever you need to think. I'm pretty (laughs) sure that's probably not the case. Because, I mean, you spend enough time talking to writers and they're like, yeah, I just did a thing. And it's kind of delightful watching people say, or everyone brings what they are going to bring. To everyone brings they what they're going to bring. And like, they read what they're, I mean, I literally, one family member who I will just say, I adore. And in they never came into my head at all in writing this book was like, I saw what you did with me on, you know, very minor character. And I was like, oh, okay. If you think that, that's great. (laughs) Okay, I realize, yeah, and like I said earlier, we are, of course, running out of time, but I really like Steph, and I just want to drop her in to this piece. And I know she has, you know, her outsider status, but did she surprise you at all? Or did you just kind of know that she was just going to get in there and kind of upset the apple cart? She surprised me all the time, and she is the outsider and has the outsider perspective. So she can see this family much better than they can see themselves, which I really loved about her. I sort of almost thought she might be what a reader might be in some ways. But I, the thing that surprised me about her and that I loved about her was she sort of illustrated how we are all born into families and we all tend to follow the rules and the structure of our families And she was just a tough cookie who was kind of questioning that. Why do we have to? I don't think so. So she was fun. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I met her too. I'm not sure. Well, you know, we're going to find out at book club. We're going to totally find out at book club. You and I get to have a total, this is kind of the fun of the thing. It's like, every time you read something, you get to have a different conversation. Yes. You know, that's the fun of a book club, man. So if you're not in a book club, come join us. Anyway, Adrian Brodeur, it was so lovely to have this time with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for Little Monsters and Wild Game. And, you know, wow, 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 wow. But before I really let you go, well, you sort of hinted there was something next. I suppose I can't push. (laughs) No, you can't do that. But I will just say thank you to Barnes & Noble for picking this book. I am so grateful. But I also just will say, 
you guys have been there through every step in my career at different moments. So the Discover New Writers with my first novel, events with my second, this with this book. So I'm so grateful you do a lot for readers and writers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Little Monsters. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie. I am at my Barnes & Noble in Leawood, Kansas. So we've got a couple of great books to talk about. Jamie, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? All right. Absolutely. So I think if you have finished Little Monsters and and you've torn through that and you find that you need even more strained adult siblings reconnect with their peculiar father in exotic American locales, you're in luck because I have a perfect book for you. And that's The Great Offshore Grounds by Vanessa Veselka. This is a gorgeous novel, Inside and Out. And uh, it was published back in 2021 and uh, was nominated for the National Book Award. And I'll just point out that that's an award for which Adrian. Roger is a judge. So I think I like the symmetry of these um, two authors and books together. So this is another a, a beautiful family drama about two sisters and their close relationship. One is a capable Seattle-based shipwright and a wannabe Alaskan fisherwoman, and her name is Libby. And she is playing hostess to her down on her luck, a sister, Cheyenne, um, who's fresh out of a failed marriage. The two have not spent time together in years, but through the course of this novel, they embark on a uh, land and sea cross-country road trip, out into the ocean road trip. They go together after their father kind of drops a bombshell into their lives, a name that could change everything they know. And so the story is that his daughters were born to two different mothers on the same day. And Kirsten, the mother who raised them as sisters, is actually only a biological mother to one of them, and they don't know which daughter is hers. Add their adopted brother Essex, who was brought into the family as an adolescent, and if you add him into the mix with the estranged father, you're going to have really the makings of a pretty epic family drama at this point. The story also then doesn't unfold in a typical way. This is really an odyssey kind of book. Um, the sisters begin this journey. They're flat broke and their dad's getting married. They're hoping to get some money from him when instead they get this piece of information. And while this is a, a beautiful kind of epic odyssey, it is also gritty and, and tough. Their lives are complicated. Their relationships in and outside the family are fraught. Their troubles have piled up and they desperately need some financial stability. And when it turns out that's not what this wedding of their fathers is going to provide, they have to take that information instead and head out into the world together. And they get help from their sweet brother, Essex, go on a search for answers about the mother that they all love and the other mother who left. Uh, So they crisscross the country and take to the sea on this quest. There's a ton of research into boats and boating, which is actually fascinating and impressive. Uh, And the book is beautifully written, of course, but it's the terrifically real characters and their just intense sisterly bond, um, despite all the troubles and strangeness that they've endured that really sticks with you. So we love these messy people. And by the end of this book, we are just in their corner fully. We're rooting for them. And again, that's The Great Offshore Grounds by Vanessa Veselka. Mark? Fantastic. <laughs> I've been wanting to read have. that. So 
I think I'm bumping that up on my pile because it's been on my mind for a bit. So thank you for just replenishing my TBR brain at all times. So <laughs> I was thinking about the way that families can uh, feel different and what shapes a family can take and how the natural world can affect a family and how a family can affect the natural world around them. It was a very obvious choice for me. I just finished this book two days ago and it is screaming to be talked about. I have been basically grabbing people up by the shoulders just to get them to read this. And that is Seven Steeples by the magnificent Sarah Baum. I love this author so much. So the book follows a couple, Belle and Sai, as they have left sort of what they would consider, what many would consider the social norms. They've left their job, they've left their family, they've left their social connections to move to a very small home in the rural Irish countryside at the base of a small mountain. Their goal really is to just shed everything around them people-wise and focus on each other and the land around them. Baum has a quote and she writes, um, a refuge, a cult, a church of two, that was their experiment. And the way that these two characters start out with, I would say maybe some lofty expectations, and then the way that they grow into a pair that becomes almost a single person is absolutely gorgeous. I think it's a story of isolation, of one-on-one connection that grows into something very, very powerful and something that you don't often see in a coupling. But man, it is beautifully told. The way that Baum constructs and then deconstructs a sentence always, always amazes me. There are times when you're reading a paragraph and you get to the end and she breaks up the actual placing of the words in the sentence for amazing impact. It's a very profound look at the way that two people can butt their own sensibilities up against what a lot of people will consider the norm. The way that you can consider what community and family and togetherness really looks like, plus the way that she builds the voice of these characters through a third-person perspective is so impressive to me. I love the way she writes. Truly, I think anybody should just pick up this book for really the first page is just gorgeous and you will be treated through the rest of your reading experience. I love Sarah Baum again. I can't get enough of her always, but this book is really just screaming at me right now. And I I love the way that she is quiet and calm in the way that she writes. And that builds such an effective narrative without even having to try. It seems effortless and gorgeous. So if you want a unique take on family, uh, please check out Seven Steeples by Sarah Baum. Yay, you sold this. me. Uh, it's so good. <laughs> I'm um, going to run right out there and please do. It. <laughs> it's, anything she writes is magnificent, but this is one. This is a really special one. And I think a nice tie to just talking about family drama in general and what that can mean and what that can look like in so many different ways. But yeah. that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning into Port Over. Uh, please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.